Maigavanen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek. And recently on Twitter, one of the other accounts that I follow mentioned a video that annoyed her about Tolkien. And it was a video by Wisecrack about the differences between the Lord of the Rings book and the Peter Jackson movies. And so I watched it, and yeah, it has problems. So we're going to do a video response. And this is it's a weird one because it's definitely not about specific things. It's more about broad thematic elements of the movies and the books. But he does get into specifics, and it's largely in the specifics where it goes wrong, I think. So let's take a look and see what we can see. So the first major topic that he gets into is the idea that in the movies, Middle-earth is on the brink of some major change which of course is going to be caused by Sauron taking over the world, but with the hope of returning things to normal with men in charge, basically. Whereas in the book, everything is pointing to the idea that civilization is largely in decline and there's not really much optimism for the future. There's a sense in which this is accurate because the books do definitely give you the very strong idea of a past that was greater you know, the dwarves, you know, could never repeat what they did in Moria. What they do in Erebor is lesser, and even what they do in Erebor now is lesser than what they did before the dragon. You get this sense in a lot of different ways. The elves are in decline. The dwarves are in decline. Minas Tirith, when we get descriptions of it, is kind of a city in decline from its glory days and that sort of thing. But the overall point that he makes about optimism and all that is a little bit off. I mean, the, there's definitely optimism in the books because when Aragorn takes up the kingship of Gondor and Arnor, there is a lot of optimism bound up in that for the future because he is going to restore the northern kingdom of Arnor. The, you know, the dominion of Sauron is ended, and so there's a lot more hope for peace and whatnot, even in the realm of Gondor. And, you know, there's just a lot of things going with that. Another major difference is the movies don't exactly leave out the fact that the elves are leaving Middle-earth and their time is over. We get references to that multiple times in the movies, and so it doesn't really make sense to make that a point of difference where, you know, there's some optimism at the end of the movies with, you know, pessimism in the books, and one of those aspects being, you know, the end of the age of elves. I mean, that's that's a common to both versions of the story. Another factor he mentions in this regard is the, of course, the mentions of prior civilizations being greater and all that, and it's true while this is definitely more in focus in the books, we do get hints of it in the movies as well. We see these really grand things that are kind of in ruins, so even though we don't get explicit references to the fact that the dwarves can't repeat what they did with Moria, we see the vastness of Moria and the fact that it's, you know, it's dead, basically. We get the Argonath of the, you know, the two giant statues on the river that they pass on the boats, and, you know, they are grand, but they are also worn and kind of crumbling. And then on Amon Hin, and, you know, where they rest just before Boromir tries to take the ring, we see Frodo walking through the ruins of older, you know, forms of civilization with giant heads and 
other things lying around that definitely point to what at one time was a greater, you know, greater kingdom of Gondor, which is now no longer part of their realm. And we, you know, we get these things and we even get Gandalf in the, in Return of the King, mentioning the fact that the, the line of kings was broken, that rule of Gondor was handed over to lesser men. You know, he's, these lines are all from Faramir in the book. But in the movie, we do get it from Gandalf talking to Pippin, and there's a reference to how Gondor has kind of gone downhill over time. So it's not like this is totally unique to the book, and the movies just completely ignore it. It's just not as focused on. Another thing that he mentions in this section is a little weird because he says that prior to the return of the you know the, the War of the Ring basically there were two prior apocalyptic events in Middle Earth's history with you know godlike beings waging all out war against each other. Obviously one of the things he's referring to here is the War of Wrath, but the context of his other comments implies that the other apocalyptic event he's referring to is the fall of Numenor. But that doesn't involve, you know, the Valar making war on anybody else or anything like that. I mean, Eru causes, Eru Iluvatar causes the downfall of Numenor by breaking Valinor off from the rest of Arda and making Arda into a globe. And so there's the action of a divine being there, but it's not like war of one divine set against another divine set, you know, causing a lot of destruction. So his description of it is definitely off. And the other thing I would point to here is the fact that, yeah, the fall of Numenor was a catastrophic and, and you know, world-changing event, but it wasn't really apocalyptic. I mean, it sunk an island. Yes, that island was the center of the greatest human civilization ever in Arda, but it wasn't apocalyptic because the rest of Arda is still perfectly intact. It's not like it was potentially a world-ending event. The War of Wrath was a little bit more like a world-ending event because of the war that took place, even though it took place in a small, relatively small area of the world, did huge amounts of damage to you know the mainland and had the potential to go even beyond that. So at least that was a little bit more apocalyptic. And true... That also was much greater than the crisis that comes at the end of the Third Age with the War of the Ring. Numenor versus the War of the Ring, though, is a little more questionable because Numenor, great though it was, didn't fall because of an outright contest of power with Sauron, which is what happens at the end of the Third Age. Sauron is, you know, making his his bid for, you know, control of the entire world. Now you could say that. The last alliance versus Sauron at the end of the Second Age is a little more large-scale than the War of the Ring, but that doesn't seem to be what he's talking about in the video, and it's certainly not at that level either gods fighting over the world or anything like that. The last alliance, the most powerful person they have on their side is Gilgalad and Elendil, and they're just a man and an elf. A great man and a great elf, yes, but it's not anything like you know, Ainur versus Ainur going on there. The second point he gets into in the video is the idea that in the movies, the characters are much more like characters in a typical novel who develop with a fairly well-defined arc based on tension, internal tension with themselves, whereas in the books, Tolkien uses characters as 
static archetypes to kind of give them specific roles in the story. And again, here his broad point is kind of true in a sense, because it is certainly accurate that a lot of the major characters in the books don't have character arcs as well-defined as they do in the movies, but it's still overstepping to make this a broad general point. And again, this gets into the specifics. Frodo, for example, is not really a static archetype in the book at all. Uh, he, in the video, he says that he's a, an archetype of selfless humility, basically. And this is, you know, these are attributes that Frodo has in the book, certainly. But in the book, Frodo definitely goes through a character arc. He starts off being very afraid of the quest that Gandalf has him going off on and hopes to goodness his quest won't go beyond Rivendell and just exile from the Shire. By the time he gets to Rivendell, he finally, of course, makes the decision that he's going to take the ring to Mordor, which he had hoped would be for somebody else to do when he took the job back in the Shire. And then he has to learn, you know, to overcome the influence of the ring over time, and he has to learn pity and mercy when he finally comes into contact with Gollum, because when he talks to Gandalf about Gollum, He's very much not in a mood to be pitying or having mercy on Gollum. It's a pity Bilbo didn't st stab the vile creature when he had the chance. You know, he's expressing that out of fear, and that's something he has to overcome. And we see that play out all the way through the ending of The Scouring of the Shire, where he shows mercy to Saruman, you know, in part because he has learned to show pity, but also in part because he has come to realize that there are these things that are beyond his scope. You know, even if he were announced king of the Shire, he would have no right to kill Saruman, who is a different order of being altogether, and therefore a little bit beyond his jurisdiction. So there's definitely some character growth and an arc to Frodo's story in The Lord of the Rings, and if anything, there's less of one in the movies. I mean, he, you know, not to get into too much detail, but he starts off being afraid, and he ends up being you know, maybe less afraid, but we don't get as much on the pity and mercy thing as we do because we leave out the scouring of the Shire in the movies and all this sort of thing. I mean, there's lots of detail I could get into, but it would take too long to go into all of this. He is a little bit accurate as far as what he says about Aragorn being kind of an idealized king, but Aragorn in the book, we have to remember, and this is true in the movie too, we get references to it in the extended cut, that Aragorn is 87 years old. In the movie, that kind of gets glossed over almost, but in the book, the point being, Aragorn has been around 80-something years. He really doesn't need to have a lot of character development. Where he's wrong about Aragorn is that he acts like, you know, all the characters in, you know, the, the book are basically not really fallible characters, and so we can't really relate to them. But Aragorn in the, in the book, is, you know, he has his own self-doubts. When Gandalf falls in Moria, he worries about his ability to lead the Fellowship from there. He even has doubts on the road to Rivendell from Bree, wondering what the right approach is, and even manages to get lost trying to avoid the Nazgul, and goes a little too far out of his way, and, you know, that creates problems. So it's not like Aragorn is literally perfect in everything he does in the book, either. Finally, he also mentions that Gandalf is a archetype of wisdom and the unknown or unknowable. And this isn't really true. Gandalf in the book is not 
in any way some kind of archetype of wisdom. If there's an archetype of wisdom, it's probably Elrond, who is the greatest lore master in Middle-earth, or maybe Galadriel, who is the greatest elf living in Middle-earth, or, you know, even, dare I say it, Celeborn, who is described as being, you know, the wisest and most capable of giving advice of anybody in Middle-earth, even though we actually never see that in action, interestingly enough. At any rate, the point being, Gandalf, yes, is wise, and Gandalf is, you know, he's a big deal, especially from the Hobbit's perspective, but that's from the Hobbit's perspective. To the Hobbit's, of course he looks like, you know, one of the wisest people ever, because compared to them, he is. But he admits his own mistakes. He talks about the fact that he should have realized that the One Ring was something to look into sooner, that he was kind of fooled by Saruman, but then he starts taking action. Gandalf's role in the story is not so much to be the wise character, although certainly his wisdom is part of what leads them to victory, ultimately. But his main role is to be the one who is taking action against Sauron. It's, you know, he is, in a sense, the war leader in the grand scheme of things. Aragorn is the war leader of the actual armies, but Gandalf is kind of like the master strategist behind the whole thing. And that involves his wisdom, but it also involves his getting other people to do their part, you know, going to Theoden, getting him to change his mind, getting him to take action, that sort of thing. So Gandalf, I think, being described as an, you know, an archetype of wisdom and the unknowable just seems a little bit not quite right. And, you know, also the other thing is, like Aragorn, except in a more extreme way, Gandalf has been around in Middle-earth for years and years and years, like millennia. So why would he have a character arc? It doesn't make sense that he would have a character arc. Why, you know, suddenly in the last two years of his life in Middle-earth, would he suddenly have, you know, crises of character from internal tension? It just it doesn't even make sense, which is why I hate the way that they actually changed some of his character and gave himself doubt in the movies. A couple more specific points that he gets into in this regard. He mentions Aragorn, for instance, has a lot of internal struggle about, you know, wanting to be king and all that. And he, at first in the movie, does not want to be king. And therefore, you know, he has to resolve this internal struggle with himself. And he's thrust into multiple leadership positions until finally he accepts his responsibility as king when Elrond brings him the reforged, you know, sword on Duril. And you know, the I've actually done a video on the differences between Aragorn in the book and the movie and how the character arc in the movie doesn't really work. And I'll link to that, and it's a handy reference point. It's a really long video, but to sum it up, his doubt about being king in the movie is all about, you know, I don't want that power. The thematic element in the movie is men want power. That's bad. You should never have power. Therefore, don't ever give men power. And Aragorn seems to embody that in the early part of the story. And then when he finally takes the sword from Elrond, what's the resolution? Like, yes, he's been put in leadership positions, and the most prominent of those being perhaps his role at Helm's Deep. But even there, he's like just the, the captain on the ground versus Theoden, who is, you know, the main guy up on the top of the tower, and even leading the fellowship, he's kind of only leading them out of necessity. And it's not like he's having to make a whole lot of choices. And he, when he does, he's not 
In fact, he's more sure of himself in the book, I mean, in the movie, than he is in the book when it comes to how to lead the Fellowship after Lothlorien, which is interesting. But anyway, the point being, Aragorn doesn't ever resolve his doubt about having power because none of the leadership positions he's in ever actually deal with that directly. And so the character arc in the movie doesn't actually even work as a character arc. So, the you know, they try to do a character arc with Aragorn, but it doesn't really work. And his character in the book is at least a lot more consistent and doesn't have this problem, even though it also lacks a substantial character arc. Similarly, he argues that Frodo in the movie has to overcome a lot of internal challenges, and he's challenged by the ring spiritually in a way that, you know, in the book he's really not. It's just physically tol a toll on him. And this is, and it also mention, mentions, by the way, that there's like mistakes that he makes the Astro overcome in the movie, like sending Sam away and befriending Gollum. First of all, mistake, befriending Gollum, like that's a thing that happens in both versions. He treats Gollum nice both ways. You might say the mistake is more like trusting Gollum over Frodo, but that's, that's another one of those things that really makes no sense in the movie, I think. So, again, that really doesn't work. But the other part of it, being Frodo as, you know, being spiritually challenged by the ring, I actually don't see that all that much. I mean, to the extent that the, the ring seems to do anything in the movie, it just makes you a nastier person for the most part, which is a really poor representation of what happens in the book. Because in the book, and this happens multiple times with Frodo, it tempts you to do things that you might otherwise want to do and gives you rationalizations to do them. You know, when he's in the barrow and the white is, you know, potentially about to kill Mary Pippin and Sam, he thinks about running away, you know, putting the ring on and escaping and leaving his friends. But his courage in the end overcomes that. Similarly, in at Weathertop, he is fighting you know, to not put on the ring and just feels kind of compelled to do so. And actually, if you track all the times when he's tempted to put on the ring, we can see that he starts off with these temptations and rationalizations to put it on and do something with it. And over time, the rationalizations become less until finally at the Tower of Minas Morgul, he actually declines to put on the ring and it tells us that there is no answer in his will to the compulsion to put it on he is nevertheless being more or less physically forced to do it and he has to ask sam to help him stop but he has no willpower answering yep i want to do that it because by this point he has faced the spiritual challenge of the ring enough to know all of that is a fraud and therefore he is not of his own will going to put it on. So this idea that in the book he only faces physical tolls from the ring because of its weight and all this other stuff, that's just wrong. You have to ignore a lot of stuff in the book to get to that conclusion. And again, going back to the mistakes thing, yes, sending Sam away is a mistake, but he doesn't resolve that in the story. Sam just comes up after after Frodo has already been, you know, stung by Shelob and then you know, by that point, Frodo has already realized that Sam was the one that was telling the truth. But he doesn't go back and find Sam. He just decides to go on because he thinks Sam is already long gone and, well, it's too late now. 
So in what sense does he resolve any of these mistakes that he makes? I mean, like, the way he tries to argue the movie working out this way, just it doesn't actually work. The final point in this video is on the issue of religion. And when he put that headline up there on the screen, I was thinking, okay, we're going to get into he, you know, the specific references to the Valar and stuff in the movies that aren't really in the books where it's left a little more hazy. No, he totally didn't go that way at all. Actually, what he does is says that the book is way more religious because of the Frodo, Aragorn, Gandalf trifecta, which is the priest-king-prophet roles of Christ. And this is a thing that a lot of people have noted about the Lord of the Rings. Different authors have written about how this you know, plays out in the story. Frodo is playing the role of priest, making the sacrifice. Aragorn is the king. That one's kind of obvious. And then Gandalf is the prophet, the one who, you know, come, he's divine, he, in a sense, and he brings the, you know, the word of God by being the wise one and all this sort of thing. And certainly there are elements of that in the story. That's really unavoidable. But to treat the story as religious merely because these three have those Christ-like elements is, I think, giving a little bit too much weight to them. Yes, Frodo does things that allow people to see that parallel, and Aragorn is kind of the idealized king. I think Aragorn is actually the best case here because the return of the king very much has resonance with the idea of the second coming of Christ where he takes up the kingship of the world. So it's not like there's nothing to that, but I think if you put enough weight on it and say that that makes the books religious in a way that the movies are not, that's almost making it too allegorical. And you can tell he is putting too much weight on it because he ends up saying some more things that just don't make sense. For example, he says that all three characters go through some kind of death and rebirth. And this is, this is where it gets weird. Gandalf, of course, has his death fighting the Balrog and then is brought back. So that's a clear example. No argument there. His argument about, well, he doesn't argue. He just kind of shows very quickly three scenes, you know, one from each of them. And Frodo's is after he's been stung by Shelob. And, you know, Sam thinks he's dead, but he's not. So it's like, in what sense was that a death and rebirth? He didn't come back any different. Gandalf at least came back as Gandalf the White. And there was, you know, something significant there. Frodo doesn't really change as a result of being stung by Shelob, and he never actually dies anyway. So in what sense can we really say that Frodo died? It doesn't make sense to me, but where it really goes off the rails is where he talks about Aragorn, and he gives an image of Aragorn floating in the river after the war battle in the Two Towers. This doesn't happen in the book at all. And so you can't use that as an example of Aragorn having a death and rebirth type situation because that doesn't happen. So I don't know what he's referring to there. You could, I suppose, to give as much of a charitable interpretation to this as possible, say that Aragorn going through the paths of the dead is a form of dying and then being reborn. But in the book, that doesn't really work anyway, because again, he doesn't change as a result of that. and going through the paths of the dead is certainly risking death, but it's not dying, and he doesn't come out any different than he went in, so it still doesn't really work. So at the end of the day, this idea that the, the three of them mirror these aspects of Christ 
certainly I think that is a result of Tolkien being Catholic because these are things that he would have valued. You know, these are ideals that he would have thought worthy of putting into characters and things like that. You know, the, the idea that you sacrifice, the idea that you need to be, you know, a good king, and Aragorn certainly fits that kind of idea, and that Gandalf is, you know, bringing, you know, he's literally a messenger from the Valar or the gods, whatever you want to call it, to Middle-earth. And so in that sense, he is very much like a prophet. But the fact that they're in there doesn't mean they represent Jesus Christ in any meaningful sense. I think that's going too far toward allegory for Tolkien's taste. And so in the book, I don't think that really works. And he finally makes the argument that in the movies, you know, their character flaws respectively kind of undermine these archetypical ideas which, you know, form this this trifecta. And, you know, he mentions the fact that Sam is turned away by Frodo, that Aragorn doesn't want to be king, and that Gandalf has a lot of self-doubt. And it's like, well, yeah, all those things are kind of true, but again, that has to do with the fact that they gave them all character arcs. And as I mentioned before, Gandalfs and Aragorns don't even really make sense. So, yes, they kind of undermine what happens there, but it's like it doesn't really even work. So it's just kind of poor decision-making, I think, in a lot of ways. But the main point here is the, the three-part the you know the threefold offices of Christ idea it's definitely something you can get out of the Lord of the Rings but I would say that that's not even what makes them the most religious I mean you actually do have references in the book to the Valar and other things that are you know make it consistent with Tolkien's Catholicism but it's not it's not a book trying to make you be Catholic that's not what Tolkien's about and he's not about overt explicit religious references either, which is one of the reasons he wasn't too keen on Lewis's line, which in the wardrobe. So anyway, those are the three areas that he addresses that are major difference but differences between the book and the movies. I don't think any of them really make sense, and there's certainly other differences you could bring up where there really is a big one. You know, I mean, the idea of men being all about power in the movies, whereas in the book, it's really more about immortality. Other things, you know, come to mind. Some of the characters were drastically changed, like Faramir, and, you know, that's less of a thematic change, and it's more getting down to granular detail, but it's still significant, and it plays into that theme, because Faramir falls prey to the trap of getting power, whereas in the book, he doesn't. He's steadfast. So, it's an important change. But he skims over all of those kinds of changes and focuses on these that don't really even make sense. So there's my analysis. So hope you enjoyed that video. I will link to the original video I'm responding to in the description below, of course, and as I mentioned, the video that I discussed, Aragorn's character arc, put that in the description so you can go get a really detailed look at that if you want to. If you did like the video, please give it a thumbs up and share it around. You can also follow me on Twitter at JRRTLore for some occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. I'm also on Odyssey and Rumble, and I have these coming out as podcast episodes as well on almost all the major platforms. And you can support me over at Patreon. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and click that bell icon for all the notifications. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye.